This is Once for All, where Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen in as the faith held by believers of all times is now delivered to you. Throughout the last series, we have been looking at several false ways to look at Jesus, and we'll look at a couple more in today's broadcast. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Once for All. It is great to have you with us. We're always wanting to hear from our listeners. You can leave a message at our toll-free number, 1-844-51-FAITH, 1-844-51-FAITH is the number, or you can send me an email. Get the email right here, delivered once for all at gmail.com, delivered once for all at gmail. Dot com. The author of the book is Matthew Richard. He authored the book, Will Real the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? 12 False Christ. And he's on the line with us again today. Uh, Pastor Richard, thanks again for spending all the time and, and bringing this book to us and talking with us, talking with us again today. Yeah, not a problem. It's wonderful to visit about it. So it's great. Yep. Well, we've been looking at several examples of false Christ, and in your book, you talk about um, officiating a wedding, and I know how this goes. You get the opportunity to talk to people who don't normally come to church or come to your church, at least, and you met uh, Eva, who wanted to know exactly what kind of a Lutheran you were. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, she she ends up meeting me, and what happens oftentimes, and this is you got to keep in mind, this is after the wedding, and so this is at a reception, and oftentimes, as pastors, uh, many times you get invited to the reception afterwards as a pastor, and I typically go to, you know, to get a good meal and to visit with the family and so forth. I think it's a very good time, but uh, man, oftentimes it's really surprising. Oftentimes people come up and they visit with the pastor, and I don't know if it's because sometimes, you know, uh, they're relaxed and, and, and happy and they maybe have maybe a couple drinks to loosen them up and they start talking, but it, it does happen quite often where I end up having theological conversations about the church or questions being asked at receptions, and this is one of those cases where she comes up and she uh, starts kind of drilling the question, not really being rude, but just asking a lot of questions um, about uh, the church that I'm a part of, about uh, the sermon that I gave, and kind of fishing to try to figure out uh, where I stood on the issue um, of really feminism and my understanding of uh, women in the church and also Jesus uh, Christ himself. And so that's kind of where the discussion starts off within this chapter. Yeah, so she asks, are you one of those Lutherans who allows... Um let me try that again. Uh, are you one of those Lutherans who allows women to be pastors, or are you one of those other Lutherans that only allow male pastors? How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big giveaway. It's you know, are you one of those other pastors or one of those strict <laughs> Lutherans? I've heard that before, and uh, I, I simply said, you know, I'm I'm a part of a church that ordains men only, and uh, right then and there, the conversation kind of shut down quite a bit. And she's like, oh, I see, and uh, you know, surprisingly, I thought the conversation was done, but uh, that that must have kind of gone around uh, in her mind, and and it takes the conversation. Kind of a, to a new level where there's a little bit of agitation. And again, um, I've learned over the years, um, I guess I've, I've learned the art of trying to be patient. My wife says I'm one of the most patient guys she knows. I, I, and I guess there might be some patience, but I've also learned uh, the art of listening. And as you listen to people, you can kind of pick up their presuppositions and you can uh, uh, kind of ask a lot of questions to kind of help understand where they're at. And then by asking questions, you can kind of guide the conversation and and kind of uh, gently uh, debate backwards, uh, you know, in, in a very very patient way. And so this conversation then kind of opens up to uh, her views of of what she would see uh, really being as as a patriarchal system imposing uh, its view upon women. And so she has a very very much a very big struggle with masculinity and with men in general. Um, and it turns actually, I wouldn't say quite toxic, but the, the conversation does definitely have some pushback um, towards masculinity and male, men in general. But 
presuppositions is she working with to guide her towards those conclusions? Well, you know, I cover this kind of in the end of the chapter that, uh, you know, I kind of hint at in the conversation that somewhere along the line, um, there, you know, we don't know quite for sure in this conversation exactly why she has been so set off against men. Uh, maybe maybe she was uh, hurt by, you know, who knows, maybe by a father figure or maybe uh, another man had actually uh, not treated her in a decent way. So she definitely has um, some antagonism, some um, you know, an aggression towards men, and so she she really wants to separate uh, the you know the female, the woman from the man for two reasons. She wants to distinguish the woman as separate from the man, and she does not want to allow the woman to be dependent upon the man. And so uh, this talk in the wedding, and really this kind of backing up a little bit, she was actually agitated at the very beginning for the fact of that I was talking about the bride and groom, uh, how the bride is to submit to her husband, and that's really what, uh, I guess you could say, that really triggered her, that, that idea of the woman submitting to the husband really, really triggered her, and it made her get really, really defensive, and she, she was reacting to that quite substantially. Uh, but what she failed to understand is that the other part is that not only is the woman to submit to the man, but the man is to sacrifice all things for his bride, and that includes dying for her. And so the whole wedding message was one of mutual submission as the woman trusts and respects the husband and as the husband sacrifices and loves his wife, which is the beauty, you know, which is really the beautiful picture of marriage itself. But she really honed in on this idea of the woman submitting to the husband, and so she's really reacting quite substantially to that. Where does the movement of feminism come historically? Well, there, we have to keep in mind when we say feminism, um, in a lot of ways, we have to understand that there are different movements, and so. Oftentimes with movements, they're, they're a little bit more complex than just giving a simple definition. And so we want to look at feminism. There's really, we would say, three or four. Right now we might be in the midst of a fourth wave of feminism, but there's definitely for sure there's three waves of feminism, um, you know, really dating back uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s. And so the very first wave was basically fighting for uh, the woman's right for voting and so forth, and then uh, property rights. And then you see the second wave of uh, feminism that came about, um, really that was in the 1960s, and that continued to the 1980s. And that was really focusing on uh, equal pay and equal opportunity of women. And then really right now in the 1990s up to the present time, we have this third wave of feminism, which is really kind of picking up the ball from the first and second waves, but it's actually pushing a little bit further. Um, it's really with the goal and the intent of removing uh, the labels themselves of male and female um, and, and really trying to beat back any notion of uh, what we would call as a patriarchal view of society. So, uh, you know, a man holding a door open for a woman, for instance, would be really pushed against. Um, and there's really a, a pushback against masculinity, anything masculine, uh, to kind of suppress that and push it down. And so that's what we really see with this third wave of uh, feminism uh, that has been kind of emerging since the 1990s. And so, um, you know, Ava here, uh, our character, she actually embraces all three movements, and we have to keep in mind that somebody might embrace only the first part of the movement, um, and others might embrace the first and second and reject the third. Um, I know lots of women, you know, that are friends of mine that who embrace the first wave of feminism, and they adamantly reject the third wave of feminism, um, and even this emerging fourth wave. And so, we again, we have to be careful when we talk about feminism that we define what we're saying. But Ava here, she is hook, line, and sinker. She is down for that third third uh, wave of feminism, and she is pushing hard against anything uh, that's patriarchal, anything that would communicate um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the aspect of the old patriarchal system of, of a man you know, being there to, to sacrifice and love his woman, and then the woman submitting that submitting part to the man especially. What would happen in a person's spirituality if they successfully remove gender distinctions and a male-dominant structure in Christianity, this kind of a thing, what would happen theologically to such a person who succeeds, at least in their own mind, at that endeavor? 
Well, and here's what ends up happening without even realizing it. When you, when you separate um, this understanding of male and female, especially in marriage, um, these roles of, of masculinity and femininity, uh, we definitely have masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics, and we also have masculine uh, gender, you know, and female gender, and uh, we have uh, male, men and women that biologically work together to produce children and so forth. But when we reduce these characteristics, um, what can happen, especially here, especially from a feministic perspective, is that we can diminish and suppress anything of the masculinity side. Because what happens with, with Ava here in this chapter especially is she's reacting to anything masculine as being oppressive and, um, you know, the man she views as the man is trying to hold the woman underneath her thumb or under his thumb. So she sees the masculine characteristics of men as being oppressive, patriarchal, and uh, suppressing women. So she, she, she's pushing back against that. And in so doing, she is stripping, actually stripping Jesus of any masculine characteristics. And so as a result of that, her view of Jesus, uh, the way she perceives Christ, uh, she's actually seen him much more feminine and not uh, necessarily masculine. So you've created a feministic or the feminized false Christ. And what is the central message of the feminized Christ? Well, and yeah, it's a very good question. The, the feminized Christ then ends up, you know, really, the feminized Christ ends up, um, you know, not only cuddling little lambs. So if we look at this view of, of this Christ being a shepherd, so the shepherd is no longer about protecting the sheep with a firm staff and fighting back wolves. This feminized Christ is now about cuddling lambs, uh, sympathizing and uh, empathizing with those who are more distraught, those who are hurt by um, those that oppress them. This is kind of uh, pulling off of the social justice warrior false Christ. They have a lot of similarities. And so by doing so, you, you, you lose the masculinity of Jesus. But what, what we're actually not realizing, what Ava doesn't realize in this chapter, is that the masculinity of Jesus and the masculinity of men in general um, is not there to suppress or to hold women down, but it is there to serve women. Uh, this is so incredibly clear where, you know, even with my own children, Matthias and Anya, my, my two children, I'm always talking to my son that you as a man, you are called to die for your future wife. You are to serve and die for your sisters, uh, to love them, because you are the man. That is the calling. You do not use your power uh, to, to keep your sisters underneath, underneath your thumb, even though he wants to. But that power that you've been given as a man is to, to be there to serve and to love and to cherish uh, you know, the, the women in your life and to serve and to protect and take care of them. And uh, this is something that Eva um, has adamantly rejected. And insofar doing that, she has, again, rejected that attribute in Christ. And all she's left with is a, a Christ that can empathize and cuddle, like I said, cuddle lambs and, and frankly can, can't really do anything more than that. Can you think of some examples in Scripture where this masculinity is demonstrated in the life of Jesus? Well, yeah, I mentioned this before. In John chapter 10, you know, we, we think about the Good Shepherd. And I would encourage the listeners to do this. It's kind of actually quite fun. If you go to uh, Google and you Google the words uh, Good Shepherd Jesus, those three words, um, all the uh, pictures you're going to see, the majority of the pictures you're going to find are going to be due with Jesus actually um, embracing lambs. The lambs are looking like they just came out of the uh, groomers and they're nice and clean and neat and he's smiling with, with you know, white teeth and feathered hair and he's holding these lambs. But the problem with that is when it comes to John chapter 10, what we see is what makes the good shepherd good is not necessarily that he cuddles with lambs, even though he's probably very sympathetic to the lambs, but what makes him so good is he actually protects the lambs from the wolves that come to, to snatch the sheep away and to devour them. And so the good shepherd is good because he actually puts his life between the sheep and the wolves. He gives up his life. He dies for the sheep. And that is a very masculine attribute where he actually fights against uh, these wolves. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually reminded of a 
picture that I found in uh, a church in Eastern Europe, and it's, it's a picture like I've never seen before, but it really captures uh, what the Good Shepherd is. And, 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 and again, you won't see these kind of pictures a whole lot, but it shows the Good Shepherd, and he's stepping on the head of a bleeding sheep. So here's the sheep, it's bleeding, and he's stepping on its head to keep it in one spot. And this shepherd is reaching out with his other hand, and he has a wolf by the throat. And the wolf, it looks like it's, it's partly choking and trying to bite at the same time. And his fist is in the air, showing that he's going to pummel this wolf. And when I look at that, I'm like, you know what, that is a Christ uh, not only the, of, of John chapter 10, that's who Jesus is, but that is a Christ that me, as a man, that I can respect. And it's also a Christ that, that captures the attributes of what it really means to be a man, which is to sacrifice and to die and give your life for the bride, the church, which the church is always portrayed as the bride. And unfortunately, Ava does not see this. She sees this masculinity side as being oppressive rather than that which protects and serves uh, the bride. Um, or the woman. So how do we respond? How do, how do we lead Eva or someone like her to way to, to see the value of this uh, distinction and genders, and particularly the true Jesus? Well, this, this response section in this chapter, I really, I, I had set out to write it, and I, I called my wife in. We were downstairs, and my wife and I often, she, she's a photographer, so she's working on her photos, and I was working on the book, and I called her, and I said, help me with this chapter just to make sure that I capture this right. And as we were discussing it, she said, you know, the reality is, is this, is that uh, when it comes down to viewing a feminized false Christ, that feminized false Christ is worthless. And, I, and she said that right like that. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, when the wolves come, that, that false Christ who is feminized is like a hired hand. He runs. He will not stand up. He cannot protect, uh, you know, protect us from the wolves that come. And she said, I don't want a false Christ like that because he can do nothing for me. And so as we talked about Ava, she said, you know, the, the reality is that Ava first needs to understand that, you know, she may have been abused by some sort of man and that he used his power to inflict pain or to suppress her. And she needs to understand that that's sin, that she was sinned against, that that is not what masculinity is about. And then second, she needs to understand what true biblical masculinity is, which is Jesus dying for his sheep, dying for his bride, the church, and that he goes to the cross uh, with, with a, uh, just with a, with a sense of determination and fight to protect his bride, to, to drink down the cup of sin uh, for us, and to rise from the grave to defeat death and the devil and sin itself for us. Uh, because only that Christ, and not a feminized Christ, only the real Jesus is the one who can actually rescue us from sin, death, and the devil, and not this feminized, uh, effeminate, um, imaginized uh, false Christ. We're talking with Dr. Matthew Richard, author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? We're going to be taking a quick break and then continuing our conversation on the other side of the break. What happens when you take away the, all the suffering and the cross? and sound doctrine away from the true Jesus, well, you get the teddy bear Jesus. We'll be talking about that right after this break. Don't go away. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a solid reputation for innovative surgery to save babies before they're born. Case in point, ultrasound showed a couple in Uruguay whose baby had a tumor on his heart three times bigger than his heart the size of a peanut. Their doctor happened to be a friend of the surgeon at Children's, so they were flown up for the emergency surgery. Little Juan was only halfway through the pregnancy when he had the operation, yet it was successful. Doctors said waiting for the surgery a day longer may have been too late. It's amazing how God has blessed us with such life-saving technology to do heart surgery in the womb. And it shows the beauty of how God knits us together underneath our mother's heart. The Lord is good. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. It's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're the man. 
I've heard people say that when someone does something well, makes some amazing play on the basketball court or something like that. Now, no one's ever said it to me, of course, but I've seen it there. You're the man. It's, it means you've done well. You've done right. But in the Bible, it means the exact opposite. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba. How David, instead of fighting, is home and he sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof. He calls her to himself and breaks the sixth commandment, commits adultery with her, and she turns up pregnant. Then David plots to cover up the sixth commandment by having Uriah come home, but in his faithfulness to the king, he doesn't. So David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back to the war with his own death sentence in his hand. And as often happens in this world, the breaking of the fifth commandment follows the breaking of the sixth commandment. But the Lord doesn't want David to remain in his sin, so he sends to him Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells him this story. There's a certain rich man who had everything he wanted, all sorts of flocks and sheep and everything like this. And when a man comes to visit him, instead of killing one of his own flock, he goes to his neighbor who has one sheep that he loves uh, like a pet. And he takes that little lamb and he slaughters that for his friend. And David is outraged. Who is this man that I might put him to death? And Nathan says to David, You are the man. You're the man that's done this. You're the man that sinned against your neighbor and against God. And David, crushed by the law, repents and hears, and this is always the surprise, the absolution of his sins in the words of the prophet Nathan. The Lord also has put away your sin. We rejoice that we are these men who have our sins put away by our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. In his foreword to Lucas Woodford's book, Great Commission, Great Confusion, or Great Confession, Dr. Harold Sinkbeil cautions us against the desperate efforts of market-style evangelism and reminds us what the church really ought to be about. He writes, Desperation breeds innovation. When it dawns on churches that they are losing headway in terms of numerical growth, panic ensues. We've got to do something, they cry. Here's something, let's do it. In the name of contextualizing the gospel, it would appear almost anything goes. Methods from the entertainment and sales industries have been widely adapted, adopted, and imported, but to little or no avail. Statistically, the church, especially in North America, seems to be in decline. The key to the church's vitality for the looming post-Christian era is the same as it was in the pre-Christian era. Doctrinal clarity coupled with corresponding faithful practice. That was Harold Sinkbile for today's Takedown Minute. This is Sacred Meditations. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Learning to pray by actually praying, this is sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day. You are listening to Once for All, talking about the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? 12 False Christ by Dr. Matthew Richard. And um, Pastor Richard, in the, in the last false Christ that you present to us, you present to us the teddy bear Jesus um, by way of Gary and Amber, whom you call the glory theologians. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, you know, Amber and Gary are very, very much like, if we can remember back, boy, several episodes back when we talked about the Jagers, um, Jim and Stacy the Blessed, they're very, very similar. They both have what we call a theology of glory. In other words, um, 
anything going the way of the opposite end of that would be the theology of the cross. Anything going by the way of suffering, um, blood, the cross itself was very, very repulsive to Gary and Amber. They, they really struggled with a view of Jesus, of him suffering, of him dying on the cross. So, in other words, you know, Gary and Amber, they, they, they were all about Jesus, but they, they wanted to embrace the resurrected Jesus, and they wanted to go and skirt around the cross. And so it's not that they completely denied Good Friday, what happened on the cross at Mount Calvary, but that it was just too much. It was too much suffering for them. So they went around that to the Resurrection Sunday. And so this is actually quite common in American evangelicalism on our present day and age. Uh, and, I, and I guess I personal experience with this, going to many of uh, my previous Senate, going to many um, interdenominational Good Friday services, uh, the majority of the sermons, they started off with Christ on the cross for about three or four minutes, and then they bolted to Resurrection Sunday. And so there was a real resistance to dealing with the darkness of Good Friday and the darkness of uh, suffering itself. And so, again, Gary and Amber, in this chapter, they were about a a, a Jesus who uh, didn't have blood, almost like a precious moments, (laughs) a precious moments Jesus uh, that is smiling, that he's comfortable, there's no stains of sin, no suffering, no, no, no death on the cross, but just uh, a sense of happiness, a sense of glory uh, that they could embrace. Why does this make us so uncomfortable, not just Gary and Amber, but all of us? Why does the cross and the idea of suffering and, and the, the blood that flowed from the cross and, and everything, why does this make us so uncomfortable? Yeah, because you know the reality is this, is when we look at the cross, we see God's most dr- dramatic display of love. And we can look at that and we say, well, my goodness, if this is the most dramatic display of what God has done for us on Jesus dying and bleeding, suffering defeat as a criminal, it's so counterintuitive. I mean, if we think about this, the, the disciples themselves, as they were getting closer to Jerusalem, they kept on saying, you know, ooh, ooh, Jesus, you know, when we get into Jerusalem, we want to sit at your right and left-hand side. They're thinking glory. They're thinking you're going to be on, on top of some throne, probably with a golden crown with all of this great riches, and we want to be there being applauded and honored and glorified with you. And he ultimately asks, and he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. You cannot drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink. You cannot endure what I'm going to be enduring. You cannot, and what you ask, and you don't understand, is that you do not really want to be on the left and the right-hand side being crucified with me. Uh, It's just too much for you. And so ultimately, uh, when it comes down to the cross, the cross is that most dramatic display of love for us. It's the place where God's righteousness and the sin of humanity where they collide in Jesus Christ. And so simply when we look at that, it's so counterintuitive. When we think glory, we think of a throne. We don't think of a bloody cross. Uh, when we think of a king being born, uh, we think of him being born in the great halls of a kingdom uh, with pearly floors and golden walls. We don't think of a stinky manger and, uh, you know, a bunch of straw around. And so God works in ways that are counterintuitive to us, which are the theology of the cross. Um, maybe not to belabor this point too much, but to think about this, we hear this all the time. Those who, uh, those who want to be first must be last. Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. Um, blessed are those who mourn and cry over their sin. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those, I mean, on and on and on. These are things that are counterintuitive. Um, they, they essentially offend our way of thinking. They offend our old Adam, essentially, uh, what's at work here. Well, I know throughout the book you have um, demonstrated how when there are aspects of the real Jesus that people don't like or are too fond of, they just uh, take those things away and um, make a new Jesus. What do you have left when you take away the sufferings and the blood and the gore of the true Jesus? Well, 
<laughs> my whole point of this chapter is you end up with a teddy bear. Uh, you know, the thing is, when it comes to Christ on the cross, that is a Jesus who, which is the real Jesus, but when we see that view of Jesus, um, that, is, that is sometimes too much for us to handle. And it's really the end of ourselves when we look at the cross, and the end of our sinful nature. And um, that Christ is not tame to us, uh, whereas we always want to be taming Jesus. We want to um, put Jesus in our own box, and we want to have him be predictable to us. We want to be able to understand him and manage him and, and, and understand and manage them from the perspective that we, we we have him meeting in our own standards, our own expectations. And so when we go along the lines with all these false Christs and strip them of things that we find too uncomfortable for us, we're essentially boiling it down to, again, like this teddy bear. And then Jesus becomes nothing more than a squishable, huggable, false Christ that we can toss on our bed and we can hug and squeeze him when we want comfort, but then when we don't want him, we kick him off the bed, off the side, and he lays there with the laundry um, until, again, where we need to pick him up again. And so, unfortunately, when we strip these attributes from Christ, we're creating a false Christ, a false idol um, that is only propped up by our own presuppositions and really does nothing for us for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm guessing this doesn't just have to do with the you know, a crucifix we might have or or the the amount of time that we want the pastor to uh, preach about Good Friday and then move on to the resurrection. I suppose this probably has ramifications for the Christian's life day in and day out, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think I think there's a really good way of looking at this. Um, you know, I, I'm 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 always reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we also think of uh, Revelation, where it talks about Jesus as the Lion of Judah, and uh, what we end up wanting to do uh, is, is exactly what Lewis uh, picks up in his book. And I'm not sure if we mentioned this before in a previous episode or not, but uh, there's a wonderful line in there where uh, uh, they're talking about Aslan, the lion, and the lion is actually going to be depicting Jesus in this in this book and in the movies. And, uh, boy, I can't remember if it was Sarah or Lucy or Susan. It was Susan, I believe. Uh, excuse me. It was Susan. She said, you know, oh, the lion, is, is, is he safe? And there's a Mr. Beaver. He says, well, he's not safe, but he is good. And that's the reality is we want to make Jesus safe. Um, but the reality is when it comes to it, Jesus isn't safe. He's always, uh, through his word, always interrogating us, always, always exposing our sin, always bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we might be, again, um, you know, brought to repentance and faith, uh, admitting that we are nothing, that he is all. And uh, so we want to strip him of that because that's not safe to our old sinful Adam. But the reality is, Jesus isn't safe, but he is good. He is so incredibly good to us in his word as he comes to us to show us our sin, to, to bring us unto repentance, uh, to, to return us to our baptisms, and to feed and to sustain us uh, in this life that we might know that it is not I who live or you who live or anybody of us who live, but it is Christ who lives in us uh, by faith. Um, continually crucifying us over and over and over, uh, crucifying our egos so that we might live in faith anew in Christ. And so, again, we, we, we want, we don't want, uh, we want Jesus to be safe. Um, and the reality, he isn't, but he is extremely good. You say in the chapter that not only does this lead to um, a, a kind of Jesus that knows of no suffering, but it also leads people into a anti-intellectual um, way of regarding experience over sound doctrine. What do you mean by that? Yes, uh, with with this one as well, because we want to have a safe teddy bear Christ, um, we don't want a Christ who is bleeding and dying. And not only that, we don't want a Christ who uh, goes the way of intellectualism, so that we, we reject anything that is intellectual from the Word. And, and really what we're doing is we want to dumb down Christianity to the point where it doesn't interrogate us, so that it doesn't challenge us. And, and as we talk about Gary and Amber in this list, last chapter of the book, what we find out is that they're extremely educated people, um, you know, most definitely very, very educated people. And, you know, you think about this even with children in general, um, you know, they're, they're, they're reacting in this chapter 
uh, you know, just a little more context, they're reacting to a Sunday school teacher who is promoting a, a, the real Jesus, who is bloodied and died and resurrected, and that's too much for Gary and Amber's little daughter. They're, they're reacting, saying that's just too much for us. Uh, but here's the problem, is their daughter is learning about photosynthesis uh, in school, about the photosynthesis of, plant, of plants, the cell division, uh, how cells divide themselves, and so forth. She's learning all these complex scientific terms, and yet Gary and Amber are absolutely fearful of their daughter learning anything complex such as propitiation or the atonement. Uh, so it's really kind of a double standard. And the only way to explain this is that they don't want an intellectual type view. They, want, they don't want to go intellectually speaking because having a Jesus who is is, is going to, to shape and form us through his word uh, is just not safe. So they want to uh, dumb this down to the point where they not only have a, a bloodless Christ, a false Christ, but they want to have a false Christ that doesn't challenge them, scripturally speaking, and challenge their mind, uh, because then that, again, would not be safe. It would be shaping and forming and changing them too much uh, beyond their comfort zone. How would we respond to someone who wants to remove all the suffering away from from Jesus? What's our response? Well, this is very, very similar to the uh, previous false Christ with the feminized, and that is this, is when you think about a teddy bear, false Christ, uh, how much will a teddy bear, even though it might be safe for you to cling into your hands, what is that teddy bear going to do when facing sin, death, and the devil? And that's really something they have to wrestle with, Gary and Amber, uh, is they're you know, pushing this false Christ for their daughter. Uh, the question is, what happens when their daughter uh, grows older and ends up in college and faces you know, that university professor who kind of lashes out and challenges uh, their daughter's faith? Uh, is that teddy bear false Christ going to make it? Actually, the reality is that false Christ, the teddy bear, is going to be gutted out. The stuffing's going to go flying everywhere. Uh, uh, and this false Christ is not going to stand and endure um, the the intellectual challenges, the challenges of death themselves, and so forth. And so they have to come to understand that even though they're really wanting to have a safe false Christ for their daughter, that is not the that is not the false Christ that they really truly need. They need the Christ um, who is bloodied on the cross, um, who speaks and proclaims His word to us. That word that challenges us, that brings us to repentance, that delivers faith that transforms our worldview, uh, that, that Christ that speaks continually to us from his, from his word, again, interrogating and challenging us and stripping us of our idols and uh, setting us free in the truth of the gospel. And so that is the false Christ that they need. The other one will not endure uh, in the face of the devil himself or sin and death uh, itself, and especially won't endure as their daughter grows older and faces the challenges of college itself. Yeah, I mean, maybe to add to that, I I think of Jesus's words that they, you know, will hate you because they hated me. So if if we can't tolerate within our theology the kind of Jesus who would be persecuted, um, I gotta I gotta wonder uh, what kind of uh, confession we're going to have when those trying t- times come pointed at us. Right. Absolutely. And we see this, too, as well, with the uh, the giver of bling, that false Christ, uh, when it really comes down to it, uh, when challenged. And, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. It's just, it, it, it's really, the, the, the whole gist of this, the whole book itself is really, um, you know, several chapters, 12 chapters of false Christ, which is really a tragedy of seeing how we have uh, gone away as humanity, uh, especially in our North American context of deceiving ourselves, of creating these false Christs. Um, that are ultimately propped up by our own minds and that really do not endure. Uh, So, you know, Lord have mercy as we contemplate this. Indeed, and it's been a wonderful uh, learning about these to keep our eye out for these false Christs that may creep up. And when we get back from this break, we'll be continuing talking with the author, Matthew Richard, and wrapping this all together and and understanding this in a way maybe in the context as he has approached false Christ. We'll be talking about that right after this break. You're listening to Once for All, and we will be right back. Don't go away. It's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I remember at college, uh, I met a gentleman who was an atheist, an agnostic, and he handed me a list of biblical contradictions. It was 
pages, 60 or 70 contradictions in the Bible, and he said, answer these and I'll consider, uh, I'll consider Christianity. Often the, the atheists and the agnostics will say that the Bible is, is full of contradictions. And in fact, there's an entire encyclopedia called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Contradictions. Imagine then how surprised I was to read the following in the introduction to a book by C.F.W. Walther, who was by no means an agnostic or an atheist or a liberal at all. He says this, Comparing Holy Scripture with other writings, we observe that no book is apparently so full of contradictions as the Bible, and that not only in minor points, but in principal matters, in the doctrine of how we may come to God and be saved. In one place, the Bible offers forgiveness to all sinners. In another place, forgiveness of sins is withheld from all sinners. In one passage, a free offer of life everlasting is made to all men. In another, men are directed to do something themselves towards being saved. C.F.W. Walther says that the Bible contradicts itself, that it has two major doctrines, and that these two things fight against each other. How are we to understand it? How are we to sort this sort of thing out? Is it the Bible full of error and wrong? Well, Walther, Pastor Walther continues, This riddle is solved when we reflect that there are in the Scriptures two entirely different doctrines, the doctrine of the law and the doctrine of the gospel. This is the chief thing that we need to come to when we come to the scriptures. We need to say, see that in one place the Lord condemns our sins, and then in another, he freely forgives them through Christ on the cross. And we hear these two words and rejoice in them. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. This is Sacred Meditations. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. to pray by actually praying, this is sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day. With us are in sports, I'm Patrick Foss. Clayton Kershaw pitched seven scoreless innings for his major league leading 15th victory, and the Los Angeles Dodgers edged the Chicago White Sox 1-0 Tuesday night for their 10th straight victory. Kershaw says he was a little bit rusty following the All-Star break. Fastball command wasn't great the first few innings. Got a little better as it went, but uh, yeah, I mean, nine days off is definitely uh, it's not something I'm used to, so uh, thankful to get out of that uh, unscathed and uh, get this win. The NL West leading Dodgers post the best record in baseball at 65-29. and 29. Two other division leaders saw interleague action on Tuesday. NL East frontrunner Washington edged the L.A. Angels 4-3 as the Nationals won their sixth straight victory. AL Central leader Cleveland playing at San Francisco in 61-degree temperatures in mid-July lost to the Giants 2-1 as Eduardo Nunez singled to right to score the winning run in the bottom of the 10th inning. This is Esser in Sports. After trading slugger J.D. Martinez to Arizona for a package of prospects, the Detroit Tigers six games under 500, then went out and won their fourth straight game, 9-3 over Kansas City. Tigers winning pitcher Matt Boyd, who gave up three runs and six innings, says they needed to respond on a positive note following the trade. He's going to go help out Arizona. they got a great ball player in him. It's tough losing him, but we got a job to do, and that's out of our control. Chris Davis homered in a six-run first inning and added a grand slam in the fourth as Baltimore clobbered Texas 12-1. Evan Gaddis homered twice as West leader Houston beat Seattle 6 Two. It was New York 6-3 over Minnesota, Boston 5, Toronto 4 in 15 innings, Tampa Bay 4-3 over Oakland. The AL East race now looks like this. First place Boston holds a two-game lead over the race and three-and-a-half games over the Yankees. In the National League, it was Pittsburgh 4-3 over Milwaukee, Chicago 5, Atlanta won the Cubs who pulled within two-and-a-half games of the Central leading Brewers. Philadelphia beat Miami 5-2. It was St. Louis 5-0 over New York, Arizona 11, Cincinnati 2, Colorado 9, San Diego 7. With us in sports, I'm Patrick Foss.
And we're back. You are listening to Once for All. It is great to have you with us today. We have been in an ongoing series with Pastor Matthew Richard. He authored the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Twelve False Christs. And on these airwaves, he's taken the time to walk through each and every one of them for us. I would encourage you, if this has sounded interesting in any way whatsoever, check out this book. You can go to cph.org slash realjesus, get all the information about the book, and then how you can order it right there on the webpage, cph.org slash realjesus. And in this uh, final time we have left, um, Pastor Richard, uh, one thing that was interesting is we encountered all these people throughout the book. You've you've introduced us to certain figures that uh, have had a confused view of the real Jesus, giving them a false Jesus. And one character that you introduce us to in the in the last chapter of the book is yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, you know, this is one of the things where, you know, I wanted to say to the very end of the book, uh, in a sense, the reader can maybe uh, find themselves get a little bit uh, agitated with myself. In a sense, we we're meet all these characters, and we kind of hit pause, and we, we examine everything they say, and we take them apart, and really, we go through these exercises in each chapter. Uh, we go through these exercises in each chapter, uh, and the, the, the exercises is basically going through and seeing the areas that, that uh, again, they have created these false Christs. And so the very last chapter I wanted to save to help the reader understand that this is something that I don't stand above these other characters uh, with my own uh, abilities. These, 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 are my, these are my own failings as well, that I have done this myself. I have created false Christs uh, as well. And so... In this section of the very last chapter, we talk about my own failings and how I have actually believed uh, a false Christ and the result of that, of my own idols themselves falling apart and understanding that with each greater understanding of how depraved and sinful that I am as a human being, that the false Christ that I was holding to was not sufficient to rescue me from that new revealed sin. And that as really throughout all of life, the more we understand our sinful nature, the, the, the greater the need that we have to have to understand the real Jesus who accomplished all for us on the cross. Uh, you talk about how, as a pastor, you felt like an utter failure. What was going on? Yeah, this is a time uh, in my life, um, boy, this is a while back, where where everything was starting to fall apart. You know, I had I had bought into, uh, boy, a lot of false um, theology. I had bought into, uh, you know, a false Christ that propped myself up in my own endeavors. And ultimately what was happening was, um, you know, these failings were catching up to me as a pastor. And uh, they were coming and they were, uh, I was being ripped apart and repentance, understanding that uh, I had really, as a pastor in my own spirituality, I had put myself in the driver's seat of my own spirituality, thinking that I had it all together, um, and then I was actually a uh, master and commander as a pastor itself, rather than being a servant of Christ, and so I'd actually demoted Jesus into my back pocket, uh, and again, uh, through the circumstances of life, through the circumstances of of my own being confronted with my own uh, idolatry, um, I was being exposed to my sin and, and experiencing repentance, which has a unique feeling to it. It actually uh, grinds us down to nothing, uh, to a fine powder. And then, you know, hearing, you know, hearing about that, uh, the real Jesus from the scriptures, uh, that he came to uh, save uh, not the righteous, but the sinners, those who are sin sick, and to hear once again that I needed Jesus for all aspects of my life, uh, especially especially as a pastor, and uh, being brought to the end of myself, my end of my idols, knowing that I was propping them up on my own presuppositions. You say that the uh, real Jesus uh, originally met you in baptism. Someone might hear that and say, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know about that. Explain what you mean by that. 
Yes. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, Christ comes to us, you know, the question is, how does he come to us? He comes to us in the Word. He comes to us in baptism. In baptism, when we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord is placing his name upon us. He's marking us as one of the redeemed. We're taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so, uh, Thinking of this, from my baptism, the real Jesus met me when I was helpless, when I was powerless, when I couldn't do anything. Um, As a helpless babe, he came and he snatched me from the kingdom of darkness and made me his child. And the same Jesus is the one that has held me all along. But as, boy, my goodness, as all of us, we are prone to wander and we're prone to leave the God that we love, as the old hymn says. Uh, we're, we're, We're so... Uh, quick to jump and to go towards that which is sparkly or that which attracts us. And so in this case, um, you know, it was being returned to the Jesus, um, the real Jesus, who I was baptized into, the one who claimed me uh, when I was, again, helpless. And so at this point in this book, when I'm talking about this, this circumstance, I was being utterly returned to helplessness, which was the same place that I was when I was baptized. And in that helplessness to hear uh, that Jesus did not come for the righteous, but he came for the sick, which was me at that point, which is me every single day, which is all of us uh, that were sin sick. You've done so so well throughout this entire conversation, but I want to round up our conversation with this question. Why is it that we need the real Jesus opposed to any of the other false Christs that we might prefer for ourselves, but don't give us what the real Jesus can give us? Yeah, ultimately when it comes down to it, we need the real Jesus um, to ultimately rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. All these other false Christs, um, they all do something else for us, which really is nothing at all, or at least we think they do something else for us. And so, you know, we think of the giver of bling, you know, he, uh, you know, is supposed to give us uh, health, wealth, and prosperity, but that giver of bling is powerless to give us, uh, you know, redemption from our sins and to rescue us from sin and death and the devil himself. We think of the teddy bear, you know, might, might make us feel safe, but cannot rescue us again from sin, death, and the devil. Uh, only the real Jesus is sufficient enough to rescue us from the, uh, the, 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 the wrath of God, the, the, uh, the sin itself, and uh, death itself. It's only the real Jesus who rose from the grave and stands victorious today. All these other ones are just merely propped up, um, again, by our own uh, assumptions. They're propped up by our own aspirations. But when it comes down to it, when the real things of life come against those, they, they all fall and they all come crashing down to the ground because they just simply cannot bear the weight uh, of these big, you know, these big things in life such as sin, death, and the devil. But the real Jesus, he bore those things, and he stands victorious today with an empty tomb. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for being on with us, and thank you for taking the time to write this book to give us some clarity of of who the real Jesus is and the forgiveness that he brings um, in, in his suffering, death, and resurrection. Yes, my pleasure. It's very, very fun to do. And, and uh, again, it's just it's a joy to hear the real Jesus for each and every one of us. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. The book is Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Twelve False Christ by Matthew Richard. You can find out more about this book by going to the website cph.org slash real Jesus. And I would highly recommend this book. If you miss any part of today's broadcast or any other of our broadcasts in the series, you can listen to them. Go back and listen to them again and listen to them in companion to reading the book. Website is onceforallradio.com, onceforallradio.com. And we do want to get feedback from you. What do you think? Give us a phone call. A voicemail message will work. one 844 faith is a toll-free number. You can also send me an email. The email address is deliveredonceforall at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Once For All. Always great to have you listening, and we'll talk to you again next time. This has been Once For All. You can contact the show by sending an email, delivered once for all at gmail.com. You can listen again to this show or any other episodes by visiting onceforallradio.com. Until next time, stand firm in the faith, once delivered to the saints.